a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome to the show. Hey, it's good to be back on the air. Got through the weekend. I hope it was a good one for you. I got to say, I felt something this morning that I haven't felt in a long time. Oh, no, he's getting philosophical right off the bat. No, actually, I'm talking about it was cool out this morning. <laughs> My son David and I were standing out in our driveway going, can you feel that? That uh, that does not feel like the uh, balmy days of summer are, uh, you know, still you know, firmly on us. No, I, I think we've got some, uh, I think some fall weather is coming. And frankly, it's about dang time. I'm ready for it. How about you? So our show is brought to you every weekday at this time by our friends at firesteel.com. I hope you'll take advantage, as I've seen a number of my listeners uh, have, have sent me messages or have posted pictures on Facebook of the fire steel tools that they have picked up. Whether it's magnesium fire starters or a gob spark, these are the uh, ferro rods and strikers that can help you create a fire <clears throat> under any conditions. It's very fascinating stuff, and it's a great thing to have because it uh, it takes away the need to stockpile, you know, tons of matches or, or cigarette lighters or things like that. Having the ability to start a fire under almost any conditions is an essential part of preparedness and survival. Go to firesteel.com. They'll show you how it's done. Do it before September 3rd, and when you make your purchase, put in my name, Brian with a Y, and they'll uh, give you a nice little 10% discount at checkout. Firesteel.com. Okay, is it just me, or is the uh, COVID-19 narrative starting to fall apart like a soup sandwich? My friend Connor Boyack posted something over the weekend, and I, I know CNN has been trying to walk, it, walk, walk this back, like, oh, this is a discredited report from conspiracy theorists, uh, QAnon. They're really upset that President Trump retweeted this. But uh, Connor has, uh, he, he's got the graph here from the uh, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The headline here says, This week the CDC quietly updated the COVID number to admit that only 6% of all the 161,392 deaths recorded actually died solely from COVID. Now here's what that means. Connor says, The CDC has now admitted what many already knew or suspected and that is very few of the deaths attributed to COVID-19 were caused by the virus. Their report indicates only 6% of deaths were caused solely by coronavirus. All other cases involved some comorbidity that contributed to or resulted in the fatality. I'd say that's a pretty big deal, wouldn't you? In other words, this pandemic is hardly the threat it has been loudly proclaimed to be. And Connor says it's not a reason to shut down businesses. It's not a reason to mandate face diapers. It's not a reason to threaten people with jail or fine them. It's not a reason to close schools and plug kids into boring Zoom calls. Though he says uh, we homeschoolers have been happy to welcome such kids into our ranks, this cluster has been great as a recruiting program for education models that actually make sense. 
Yes, he says, some people are more susceptible to catching COVID. Even then, they're quite likely to survive it just fine. And these people may wish to mitigate that risk by taking appropriate actions, including wearing a mask, staying home, etc. But he says, for people who don't have one of the risk factors, life should be able to move on without imposing unreasonable burdens on the many because of the sensitivities of the few. I know, it's, I'm fighting the urge to say, I told you so, but uh, it's... <sighs> at some point, we're going to have to be able to do that. And the people who were being decried as, you're just in, you're concerned about money, and you don't care about anything, and you don't care about anyone, you know, that's not the case. The fact of the matter is, the numbers were being inflated. They were being deliberately reported in ways that led us to believe that this was far more of a grave danger and justified far more draconian actions than they actually did. And none of this negates the fact that, uh, yes, elderly people, particularly those in long-term care or nursing home facilities, were more at risk. And it's sad that many of them caught the COVID virus and that it became, you know, one of the factors in their deaths. But we can stop pretending that this is something that... uh, that just flat out uh, was was not, uh, uh, it was unavoidable. We had no choice but to do what we had to do. Michael Rosef, writing for LewRockwell.com, says, The death totals attributed to COVID-19 have been shamelessly inflated. They've been used for all sorts of nefarious and harmful ends that have devilishly hurt Americans, falling heavily on children, the unemployed, small business owners, and many, many others. He says these false statistics have supported the terrible, terrible notion of lockdowns and unhealthy measures such as face masks. As long ago as April 12th, the overstatement of deaths was already recognizable. He said it could be estimated from data on deaths that had occurred in Italy in the preceding several months. And he points out at that time, his estimate using those data was that the actual COVID deaths were about one-third of the stated totals. But now the CDC has come out with its own estimates based on American experience. They say, quote, for 6% of the deaths, COVID-19 was the only cause mentioned. For deaths with conditions or causes in addition to COVID-19, on average, there were 2.6 additional conditions or causes per death. End quote. That's the CDC's words. That's not him making them up. That's the CDC that was saying that. Now, Michael Rosef says if there have been what are termed 180,000 COVID-19 deaths, the current number that receives the greatest attention, the CDC is now saying that what, that 10,800 have COVID-19 <clears throat> excuse me, as their sole cause. The rest, that would be 169,200, involve other negative health conditions that also contribute to the death. Now, typically, the affected person has had 2.6 other serious conditions, or comorbidities. You can see his point, right? It's quite hard to shake loose of the idea that if it hadn't been for COVID-19, these otherwise seriously ill and elderly people, usually age 80 and above, would still be alive. But there is no way to blame COVID-19 solely when several other comorbidities are are present. The other ailments are present and contributory. 
And he says, I know this sounds terrible to say, but clear thought demands it. These people already had one leg in the grave. They were approaching end of life. We can imagine this, which is true in most instances, that a person who is healthy and has no other ailments shakes off the virus-induced illness. However, what if that person is the victim during that bout of illness of several more severe health issues? Well, then he or she may perish. What's to blame? The initial COVID-19, which could have been survived, or the subsequent comorbidities like heart disease or emphysema? It's impossible to single out a sole cause when several are present together. He says the CDC's 6% figure is far, far lower than the headline number. Instead of 180,000 dead from the virus, a figure of 10,800 is currently pertinent. Think of what that means. It means that existing draconian measures should all be shelved immediately. They're not just neutral in their effects, they are known to be harmful in many ways, including causing deaths that otherwise would not have occurred. It also means that crash push for vaccines should be abandoned. There's no need to rush an untested vaccine into production and inoculate large numbers of people. The main measures that need to be taken are for elderly people in bad health to be kept away from people with infections, not only of COVID-19 but other similar sicknesses. And everyone, including the elderly, should be keeping up their immune systems by well-known means that are not costly to implement. He says it means a lot more such as the complicity of the CDC in propagating panic for so long. But he says these are beyond the scope of that blog entry. Hmm. Fascinating stuff, wouldn't you say? I know uh, Jeffrey Tucker, in a tweet that uh, I saw from him recently, shared an article about a mass gathering in Berlin. Oh, my goodness, the Germans. They are not happy about this at all. And there was a massive demonstration that took place in Berlin. Um, no, social distancing. There, there was not a lot of social distancing going on. But thousands, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people all showed up and very clearly made their displeasure known at the prospect of being, you know, locked down and otherwise bossed around forever. Can you blame them? All right. I feel good getting this off my chest early on. I've been waiting a long time for the CDC to finally start to come clean. You notice how quiet it was, too? Major news headlines. Don't see a lot talking about it. Just CNN desperately trying to walk it back. All right. Well, good luck with that. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I do want to mention the Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. They are one of our fine sponsors. I'm going to have some more things to say about them coming up in the uh, next hour of the show. In the meantime, so, I know that uh, the the lockdowns, the pandemic, all of the stuff that uh, that has been going on has been pretty tough on all of us. Had a chance to catch up with my neighbor, Kyle, uh, just uh, the other day. I was out uh, walking with my son, and uh, we ran into my neighbor, and I, and I realized, gosh dang it, it's been months since I have, have talked to Kyle and his wife and their kids and just checked in on them to see how they were doing. And I, I'm feeling, you know, I'm feeling pretty bad. 
because I, I feel like, man, I should have uh, <laughs> probably should have said hi a long time ago. Nonetheless, he was doing well. His family was doing well. But all of us agreed, you know, we, we kind of become acclimated to the weirdness, right? Everybody running around in face masks, hand sanitizer is everywhere, and, you know, no church, no movie theaters. This has got to be toughest on, on kids, even though kids are very resilient and they, they tend to adapt to better than those of us who are kind of set in our ways. Can you imagine what's going through the mind of kids who are old enough to at least distinguish between what life was like eight months ago versus what it's like today? I could see it being a challenge, and I'm sure, you know, they're being told. I feel, especially for the kids going back to school, I don't want this to sound like a screed against the public schools, but good heavens, if, if a little bit of, uh, of prevention is, is a good thing, then a massive amount of overkill has, has got to be better. And it puts such an incredible burden on the teachers and other administrators. And yet, I wonder if we'll see anything, if, if anybody's going to start to walk this back. There's a part of me that, makes me that makes me think, probably not. If only from the standpoint, someone is going to have to take accountability at some point. The governor, the lieutenant governor, the health officials, someone is going to have to answer for all of the damage done in the name of protecting us when it turned out to be largely unnecessary. And I'm not suggesting, boy, a bunch of vengeful lawsuits. Ah, that should set us right. But it would be nice for, for someone who made some of those calls to, to issue a mea culpa and at least say, look, we did the best we thought we could. We, we, we felt like we were reacting the way we should because of the unknowns. But just to hear one of them say, we screwed up. We caused a problem, and maybe they'd even take it one step further. What can we do to fix this? Well, you can start by taking your boot off the back of my neck, but, you know, that's, that's just a friendly suggestion. Let's go back to talking about the kids here for a minute. Emma Freer, writing for intellectualtakeout.org, has three tips for helping weary kids through the pandemic. I thought these were really good, and I thought they were very timely. She starts with the question, is the coronavirus crisis ever going to end? It is the question we're all asking, particularly the youngest members of our society. While the science shows the virus itself is not very dangerous to children, the emotional damage they're suffering from the shutdowns is potentially enormous. Their lives have been turned upside down. In the United States, 49% of children interviewed for a Save the Children survey said they were worried about the pandemic. Now, she says parents are also worn out by this crisis, but they need to stay strong for the, st for the sake of their children. So what can loving fathers and mothers do to help their kids weather the storm? Emma Freire says as she works through these daily challenges with three kids of her own, here are three methods that she found to help those weary kids get through a crisis that never seems to end. Number one, she says keep it fun. Introducing an element of fun whenever possible can lighten the burdensome government restrictions for kids. So get creative. If your state government forces your kids to wear face masks, buy ones with their favorite cartoon characters. Sing songs together while you wash hands or buy colorful kid-themed hands uh, bottles of hand soap. Rather, YouTube is now full of songs that teach about things like social distancing. Try learning a few. Anything you can do to make the restrictions a bit more fun and less onerous will help your kid to cope. Now, I, I have to offer this aside here. I understand. 
some adults are going to be like, wait a minute, that sounds like you're, you're playing into it or trying to brainwash the kids. Remember, they're kids. They're, they're young. They don't have the big picture like you and I do. So, in, in, you know, enlisting them to our outrage may not be something you really want to put on somebody who should be innocently enjoying life and not worrying about things like taxes and uh, bureaucracy. In other words, give them a little time to enjoy their innocence. Which goes to her second point. Emma Freer says, watch what you say. She says, parents need to be very careful about what they say about COVID to their children. Of course, some basic explanations are needed, but keeping them as simple as possible goes a long way in helping the situation. And she says, there are also some things that kids definitely do not need to hear. Take political opinions. We can all spew commentary about the way our elected officials are handling the situation, but kids are not developmentally ready to process those types of issues. When we let children in on too much information, adult verbal and emotional clutter, it rushes them along, pushing them ahead without a foundation. That's according to Kim John Payne and Lisa M. Ross in their book Simplicity Parenting, using the extraordinary power of less to raise calmer, happier, and more secure kids. It's a misnomer to think we are sharing with our children when we include them in adult conversations about adult concerns. Sharing suggests an equal and mutual exchange, one that's impossible for a child to offer and unfair for an adult to expect. Now, it may sound weird for me to say this, but I'm really grateful that my parents did not make discussions of Vietnam and, you know, the Johnson presidency and Nixon and Watergate a part of our daily dinner table conversation. It's not that it didn't matter to know about those things, but as a kid growing up, I feel like I had a pretty good childhood. And part of it was because my parents did not require me to, you know, uh, to shoulder the cares and worries and responsibilities of the world and world events too early in my life. They allowed me to have some innocence and to be able to enjoy that very precious and fleeting time as a child without having to think about, uh, you know, all the other stuff that was going on. Now, that doesn't mean they, they didn't have a chance to teach me standards you know, virtues and things like that. But we just didn't get caught up in a lot of the the political chatter. And I'm actually grateful for it. All right, final suggestion from Emma Freire on tips for helping weary kids through the pandemic. And this is a good one. She says, just be there. The best thing you can do for your kids right now is simply be there for them. Your time and undivided attention are always the things your child craves the most. And that's even more true now than, than ever. Many parents are facing financial and other stresses due to the shutdowns, so it's easy to be distracted. But they should prioritize moments of connection with their child. The best activities are usually the simplest ones. Reading a story together, playing a board game, or letting the kids help cook dinner. She says parenting during COVID-19 poses unique challenges, but it also offers unique opportunities. What's more important and valuable than helping a child get through difficult times? Her point being that wise parents will make the most of it. Now, it seems to me there should be some good opportunities here for uh, family beyond just the parents to help out. I'm not trying to create any more work for anybody, so get that look off your face. But if there is one thing that, uh, that I have found that's a positive from the past few months, 
It's that COVID has given the opportunity to reach out to people around us and to focus on them in ways that, that take our attention away from just, you know, lamenting our own sorry lot in life. I felt this when I was talking with my neighbors. One thing that, uh, that they pointed out that just absolutely warmed my heart was they talked about when, when the first lockdowns began and the store shelves were empty, a lot of our neighbors did a little informal thing. Hey, if I'm going to the store and I see something, what do you need? You know, do you need diapers? Do you need milk or whatever? We looked out for each other and they said that calmed their hearts in such a big way. It's one of the better lessons I've taken away from this whole ordeal. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, we are back. Thanks again for joining us on the show. So I guess over the weekend, there were some rumors flying around. And look, given some of the unrest that uh, that has been taking place across the nation, I mean, for crying out loud, the shootings in Kenosha last week, and then uh, I guess in Portland, Oregon, uh, Saturday night, uh, a Trump supporter was shot dead in the streets. And yeah, the whole situation doesn't seem to be getting a whole lot better. But, uh, you know, it was interesting to see there was, a, there was a rumor, and I think it was just a rumor that... Uh, Black Lives Matter, along with Antifa, were going to come. And, you know, I, I hate to use the term protesters interchangeably with the uh, rioters, but there has not been a lot of distinction in some of the cities between the people who are peacefully protesting and the ones who are rioting. In other words, I think the rioters use what few peaceful protesters may be as cover for them to come in and do their dirty work. And they've done a lot of it lately. And it's really, really ugly. Nonetheless, there was a rumor that uh, St. George, Utah would be the next place for a showdown with Antifa. And, you know, I have mixed feelings on this. I am not the kind of guy who likes to go to uh, rowdy protests or demonstrations, you know, and that sort of thing. Uh, I I have attended a few events with uh, the uh, Utah Business Revival that I thought were just wonderful. But then again, they weren't, you know, people, you know, chanting and, you know, carrying on. Uh, Nobody was looking for an excuse to get jiggy, if you get my drift. It was just a a chance for people to hear common sense and discussion and commentary on things that were actually going on. But, uh, wow, the thought that uh, BLM and uh, Antifa were coming to St. George, Utah, and, and going to uh, stir things up. And, you know, the rumor was busloads are going to be coming. And I could see a lot of uh, my, my Patriot friends getting really excited about this in the sense that, are we going to stand for this? And, you know, do we show up armed? And my thoughts personally are, if there was truth to this rumor, which, it, by the way, it turns out there wasn't. There was a bunch of, like, students, young girls standing there holding BLM signs. No big deal. The counter-protest which involved a lot of flag-waving Americans, uh, was uh, much, much larger and peaceful, as, as it should be. But my take, for what it's worth, is, look, the people who are out there to start trouble, and I'm talking the legit Antifa types, the nihilists who are out there, you know, trashing car dealerships, burning buildings, beating strangers who don't do their funny salute against fascism, if you can appreciate the irony of that. Um, 
those those individuals thrive on reaction. They need reaction. And if you deny them reaction, they just fade away. So wherever possible, my suggestion is deny them the reaction. Don't give them an audience. Don't give them something to play to. We learned this with one of our kids early on. When temper tantrums started, instead of indulging it or trying to fight it head on or trying to reason with a you know three-year-old who's having a fit, you simply remove yourself from the situation. You know, they, they could be sitting there in the living room or whatever. I mean, you don't leave them standing in traffic, obviously, but if, if they're just going to throw a temper tantrum, it's like, okay, I'll talk to you when you're done, and you walk away. And when there's nobody there to, to throw a tantrum for, guess what? The tantrum stops. Nine times out of ten, they'd be quite reasonable within a very short amount of time. Strange how that works. Maybe some people will be offended that I'm comparing Antifa to a bunch of uh, tantruming toddlers, but... I think it holds up. I think it actually, I think the the comparison works favorably. (laughs) Maybe not for Antifa, but I think it still holds up. I was grateful to see the number of people who showed up in St. George. And I was happy to see that there, there is obviously the flame of liberty burns in these folks' hearts. And it kind of raises the question, and Jeff Minnick, writing for intellectualtakeout.org, has a really remarkable essay about seeing liberty, eyes wide open and seeing it. Listen to what he says. He says, in, the Lo- in Lost in the Cosmos, the last self-help book, Walker Percy raises a number of philosophical questions regarding the self and why we know so little about ourselves. So he invites his readers to participate in a number of what he calls thought experiments. In a chapter on why the self is the only object in the cosmos which gets bored, he offers this experiment. Imagine you're a member of a tour visiting Greece, and the group goes to the Parthenon. It's a bore. Few people even bother to look. It looked better in the brochure. So people take half a look, mostly take pictures, remark on the serious erosion by acid rain, and you are puzzled. Why should one of the glories and fonts of Western civilization, viewed under pleasant conditions, good weather, good hotel room, good food, good guide, be a bore? Now, he says, imagine what set of circumstances a viewing of the Parthenon would not be a bore. For example, you're a NATO colonel defending Greece after a Soviet assault. You are in a bunker in downtown Athens, binoculars propped on sandbags. It's dawn. A medium-range missile attack is underway. Half a million Greeks are dead. Two missiles bracket the Parthenon. The next will surely hit. Between columns of smoke, a ray of golden light catches the portico. Are you bored? Can you see the Parthenon? Explain. Now, Jeff Minnick says, Sometimes a dramatic change in circumstance can cause us to see, to really see, what until then was so commonplace and so ordinary that we scarcely gave it any thought at all. The death of a loved one from an aneurysm, so sudden that we have no time to utter a goodbye or say I love you, can wake us to memories and vanished possibilities. Many of us old enough to remember 9-11 can also remember conversations and faces from that day, even though we can't recollect what we ate for breakfast last Sunday. Well, Jeff Minnick says we are now going through just such a change in America. For the last six months, Americans have lived in confusion and fear. Some of it justified by COVID-19, some of it ginned up by those who govern us and their expert advisors. In some states, he says, we're still required to wear masks and practice social distancing. 
Many businesses remain under restrictive measures, while other establishments have permanently closed. Unlike some countries around the world, our schools will once again practice distance learning rather than getting students back in the classroom. Our churches are either closed or operating at reduced capacity, and sporting events, concerts, fairs, and other group activities are verboten in most places. Who issued these edicts, which in so many states have led to what is now basically a six-month quarantine? Those who issued those edicts, he says, may have sought to reduce coronavirus deaths, but they were blind to the side effects of their unprecedented dictates, the economic woes, the psychological damage to people of all ages, the increases in drinking and drug use, and the violence in many cities since June, all in part a consequence of the lockdown. Now, I shared with you, this is an aside from Jeff's uh, article, I shared with you the video of the man speaking to the Shasta County, California Board of Supervisors, who pointed out what many are starting to say, and that is that the officials who implemented this or instituted this quarantine continue to get paid, while so many others have lost their jobs. You remember when he said, open the country, open the county, rather. Let our citizens do what they need to do. Let owners of businesses do what they need to do to feed their families. Take the masks off. Quit masking and muzzling your children. The psychological damage you're doing to them is horrible. I've had six friends kill themselves since it happened. Veterans who lost their jobs. How do you feel about being complicit in perpetuating that? The greatest hoax ever perpetuated on the American people. You're part of it while you wear your masks. In Shasta County, we're supposed to be red country up here. Not blue country, we're red country here. End quote. Now, Jeff Minnick says it shouldn't matter whether we live in blue country or red country. Every American should worry about the erosion of our freedoms. Governors and mayors have ridden roughshod over our First Amendment liberties, and nearly all of us have acquiesced to their edicts, some of us from fear, some because we're trying to be good citizens. He says in the upcoming election, we should pay attention to the stances taken by candidates on issues like jobs, education, and law and order. These are vital to our country's health. But most of all, let's take a hard look at what the candidates say about the value of liberty and vote accordingly. Soon, he says, there will be an acid test for these officials. Flu season is fast approaching. This may result in an uptick in coronavirus cases if some of these politicians revert to shutdowns and quarantines. Then he says it's time to say enough is enough, protest their commands, and if necessary, refuse to obey them. Sick Semper Tyrannus. He's writing from Virginia, by the way, so maybe you'll understand if he's utilizing his state's motto in driving home that point. I can't disagree with him. And I think the the opportunity that's been placed before us, even though you may not wish to see it as an opportunity, is that we have been shown some of the things that we've taken for granted. Liberty being one of them, yes. But there are other things, too. I think about uh, the last time that I got to visit with my 85-year-old mother. It's been a while. And yet the fears of coronavirus, you know, we, we've, they've limited our travel. They've limited our ability to visit. I miss spending time with loved ones. I miss socializing. And I miss my liberty too, but you probably already knew that. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, once again, welcome back to the show. Hey, I know I haven't mentioned it yet in this hour, but uh, I always post show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. These will be the show notes for August 31st. Yikes, last day of August, and this is the year 2020 of our Lord. But uh, you can always check out the show notes from uh, this show or past shows. You'll find links, marvelous hyperlinks to the various articles or guests that I have the chance to interview. And, of course, um, you'll also find links to my sponsors like Firesteel or the Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. I also give you the opportunity, if you are so inclined, to subscribe to the podcast. Hopefully you've subscribed already. I also give you the chance to become a wrong thinker. And, and I'm going to take it one step further here. If you would like to be an active part of supporting this program or this podcast, you can find that link as well at my website. Um, look, for as little as 99 cents a month, you can contribute. And, and I'm telling you, every dollar you contribute is considered sacred funds that I use for the purpose of uh, keeping this show going. I am truly an independent contractor, and I am standing on my own two feet and doing the best I can to uh, proclaim liberty and proclaim truth as I best understand it. If you find value in this, if you find encouragement or truth or light, I would ask you to please consider being a supporter. Every little bit helps. I appreciate it, and, and I thank those who are already currently doing this. It is, uh, it is a blessing uh, that I don't even have words to describe. So I found an interesting article about, uh, about face masks, and it's probably because I've been having this conversation with some folks in the last few days, um, and not a vehement argument about uh, to mask or not to mask, but how about this question? Are we becoming a faceless nation? Now, what exactly does that mean, a faceless nation? The article by George Gilder, published on the American Institute for Economic Research website, has a picture of a kid with his face obscured by an American flag. And he starts with the lyrics of a song that I think I first heard on Malcolm in the Middle, uh, the song Charlie on the MTA, Will He Ever Return? No, He Never Returned. His fate is still unlearned. He may ride forever neath the streets of Boston, the man who never returned. And so uh, in this case, George Gilder says, Perhaps, he says, I recall the old song about to Charlie on the MTA. Perhaps it was the earlier incantation of Charlie Baker, who finally did return as the lock-brained, phasist Republican governor of Massachusetts. But he said, in any case, you better read this prophecy quickly, because I may not return to write any more. Charlie has taken over. And he says, I may have been unmasked as part of a troubling cluster of private recreational activity. I am wantonly exhibiting my face to the world in defiance of Anthony Fauci and his COVIDocracy. After a near crisis at a Starbucks in Santa Barbara, where the restroom was closed for the safety and well-being of our customers, he says, I received on my way home a serious warning from an Alaska Airlines flight attendant. I smiled, but she did not have a sense of humor. I was told that I was seriously jeopardizing the safety of guests and employees by my failure to fully cover my nose with my face mask. In the fusiform gyrus, the human brain is geared to respond to faces. But the absence of faces, less refined, in the absence of faces, less refined mental responses arise. He says, I tried to explain that as an 80-year-old man, I use my nose to breathe. 
I guess I was feeling facially feisty. As an after effect of my recent trip to Moscow, Idaho, Moscow, Idaho, that is, where I was interviewed by Pastor Douglas Wilson on his Man Rampant interview show. His healthy congregation of 1,400 gathers unmasked, with Wilson maintaining that its worship services are not a protest demonstration, or rather are a protest demonstration protected by the First Amendment. But man rampant or not, he says, in these dark days, I don't recommend talking back to the health care nomenclature. Alaska Airlines holds the, upholds the prevailing prevarication that wearing a face covering significantly reduces transmission of the COVID-19 virus. To a virus thousands of times smaller than the mesh of a mask, a cloth appears like an immense lattice of large and completely open windows and doors. And he says its chief effects are to make politicians and pettifogs feel important and citizens feel ignominious. The cloth confines larger bacteria, aerosols, and sputum near receptive services, such as your eyes, nose, and mouth, and thus cultivates both mental and physical disease. Now, he says a punctilious study by Swiss researchers poured through dozens of peer-reviewed analyses on the impact of masks and found no significant benefits and several downsides. Oh, well, says George Gilder, such evidence is no longer relevant in America. Almost utterly suppressed are the key facts in the central debate in our politics. Handing me an alarming yellow card, Alaska informed me, this is your final notice to comply with our policy. Reading on anxiously to determine whether I would be arrested on my arrival at O'Hare or whether I might instead be cast out of the plane before landing, I learned my fate. If you do not comply, you will not be permitted to fly with us again for as long as our policy remains in effect. This suspension will occur immediately upon landing and will include cancellation of any remaining portion of your itinerary, including connecting and return flights. Wow. Now, George Gilder says this may result in my confinement for 14 days in quarantine near O'Hare under the wanton violation of the Interstate Commerce Clause by invidiously posturing governors playing their silly tit-for-tat games. Now, he says, I hasten to say that I don't blame Alaska Airlines or the poor faceless flight attendants. It's an effect of runaway media and power-maddened politicians gratuitously attacking a crucial dimension of the personal identity of fully healthy American citizens. Perhaps aware of rising resentment toward the inexcusable lockdowns, the COVID panic patrol now maintains that business reopening depends on mandatory masks. The politicians who brutally botched the economy are now holding businesses hostage to their humiliating masquerade. But George Gilder says the masks are near the root of the crisis. The Alaska Airlines flight was rather full and several people wanted to shift seats in order to sit with their friends. But because of the masks, these ordinarily routine negotiations were unsuccessful. Amid the noise of the plane and the missing of usual context of facial signals, people from different cultures could not understand what each other were saying or feeling. He says one young Asian woman in an aisle seat took off her mask to make herself clearer to the young man in the window seat who was seeking to move. Under normal circumstances, being addressed by a beautiful face would be a pleasant experience. But he recoiled, barking, put your mask back on. The woman in front of her, who was seeking to move next to the man at the window, then turned around to join the fray. Please put your mask on before you speak to me, she exclaimed. By the time the plane took off, no one was in their wanted seat and everyone was seething. Everyone felt insulted. He says later during the flight, the man in the window seat needed to get up to use the bathroom. 
The woman on the aisle was plunged into a fugue state and seemed unable able to move or speak. She just sat in a trance, looking straight ahead through glazed eyes. He eventually called the flight attendants, and they clumsily and facelessly forced her to move. Greeting the Asian woman on arrival was a cluster of Chicago police surrounded by faceless people speaking in a blur who could not understand what had happened. The woman had disrupted the plane by removing her mask and later refusing to move. She was in the wrong, he says, but it was an utterly unnecessary contretemps. Put it down as another incident of mental illness, miscommunication, conflict, and resentment caused by the egregious overreach of politicians reducing their constituents to a faceless mass of fearful and fractious non-entities. His point here is that a nation without faces cannot be free or civilized. A nation without faces cannot even talk to one another. We cannot rise to seek a common truth epitomized in the fa- by the face of a unitary God. We are consigned to C.S. Lewis's mythical nation of Gloam in his novel, Till We Have Faces. Gloam is a barbaric, pre-Christian world where the heroine learns that we cannot grasp the will of the gods or the nature of the universe till we have faces. George Gilder says, with one of two major presidential tickets joined in demanding of mandatory mask rule through Election Day and beyond, he says this election has become the test of the face of the nation. Okay, he's got a dramatic flair to his writing, but I, I don't disagree with what he's pointing out here. We treat each other differently when we're hiding behind masks. And when we start using those masks as the measure of whether a person is worthy of being counted as part of polite society or not, I think that's an issue. I think it's kind of dangerous. So what should we do? I'm not going to tell you, you shouldn't wear the mask. I'm not going to tell you that you you should wear the mask. So here's what I recommend. Maybe treat people the way that you would want to be treated, whether they're wearing a mask or not. I know it's asking a lot. After all, this is the time of COVID. But there's something about that whole concept of do unto others that still has a ring of truth. Maybe that Jesus fellow was onto something. And I don't think he qualified it with when things are good. This is The Brian Hyde Show.